Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the last paragraph of Ephesians chapter 6. Last couple paragraphs, I guess, verses 21 through 24. As tonight we look at Paul's closing words in Ephesians. Closing words are important. The uh, well-known and powerful journalist, Diane Sawyer, is said to typically close her emails to her staff with the rather, shall we say, unprofessional, because far too personal, XOXO, which perhaps you know means hugs and kisses. So known for this, uh, uh, she is that her staff has been known to panic with fear if XOXO doesn't appear at the bottom of an email she sends to them because they begin to think, oh no, what's wrong? What have I done? How did I offend? I didn't get hugs and kisses from Diane Sawyer. Some people have known to write silly closings instead of sincerely, comma, and your name. Uh, They'll write, ta-ta for now. Or they'll write, may the force be with you. Or they'll write, this message will self-destruct in 10 seconds. Often what you write at the end of a letter or note indicates how you feel about the person you're writing to. So you might say something like, with love, Ted, or your name, (laughs) or with affection, or with warm regards or fondly or something of that nature, right? It's just something about how you feel about them and the warmth in your heart towards them. Or alternatively, you might write at the end uh, something that you wish for them. You might write best wishes or best regards or take care or take care of yourself and then sign your name, right? You're saying what you desire for them. In these closing words at the end of this book of Ephesians, which we've been studying since last August, the Apostle Paul accomplishes both, both letting them know how he feels about them, where they are in his heart, as well as what he longs for them, his God's best blessings on you, so to speak. And he does that in verses 21 and 22. Uh, you get, he doesn't say it specifically, but you get a sense of his heart of warmth and love and care for them. And then verses 23 and 24, his great hopes for them. And so let me invite you then to consider what he says to them and what that means for us. Ephesians then chapter 6, beginning of verse 21. Hear now the word of God. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. 
Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd speak to us tonight. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and that it would do good things for us and in us and through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in these few words then, Paul uh, reveals, uh, on the one hand, his, his brotherly affection for the Ephesians, so much so that he's going to send Tychicus to send them uh, to carry this letter that he's written to them, this letter we've studied now for, for months and months, uh, that's meant to do them good, and Tychicus himself will encourage them. He's, he's sharing his heart of love and care and concern for them and trying to encourage them. And then he's also going to show you uh, not only how much he loves the church, but what he wants for the church. And he gives a double benediction or a double blessing from God upon them. Okay, so let's consider those two things. In the first place, notice how Paul loves the church and the comfort and encouragement he tries to give them. He says, verse 21, so that you may know how I am doing and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I sent him to you for this very purpose. So Paul knows they love him and they would want to hear from him about how he's doing. He therefore says, let me tell you how I'm doing. I'm going to send a man to, to tell you everything. In other words, uh, Paul, and you have to remember, Paul had been their pastor for years and years. Uh, and he had, he had gone from them for a while. There would have been some people in the congregation who had never personally met Paul by now. But, but by and large, most of the congregation probably knew him or certainly had heard of him and his ministry among them. They would have some concern about how the apostle of Jesus, a man who was who is specifically called by Jesus himself to speak for Jesus on earth, they would be, they would be interested to know, how's he doing? We heard he got arrested. You know, how are things going with him? You remember in Acts chapter 20, we had read some weeks ago now, that Paul, on his way to, um, while he was uh, in chains, and while he was on the way to Rome, he had, a, he had an occasion to stop and say goodbye to the Ephesians, and, uh, and they left him with, with great weeping, knowing that they would not see his face again. So these are people who loved him, and he loved them. And, uh, and in order to ease their anxieties about him, he wrote to them not only about the, the spiritual blessings that God had given to them, but, but he wrote to say, I'm sending somebody, because I can't come myself, I'm sending somebody to tell you about how I'm doing Okay, now, don't, don't misunderstand Paul here. It's not because Paul's self-centered. It's not Paul because Paul thinks, oh, well, everybody in Christianity thinks about how I'm doing. I guess occasionally I ought to tell them. That is not what's going through his heart here. But he knows. They know him. They've been praying for him. They're interested in the progress of the gospel through him. They know he's an ambassador in chains, that he's been bound and imprisoned and persecuted. And, and he knows that they want to know, well, how's he doing and how has God answered prayers on his behalf? And so what you have here is a demonstration at the very end of this book of, of the mutual care and concern of God's people for God's ministers and God's ministers for God's people. You have this, this tangible demonstration of Paul's, uh, of what Paul had said theologically in the rest of the book, that we are what? 
We are one body as a people. We're one new family, one new community in Christ. And, and anybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody else who belongs to Jesus. And we ought to have a care and concern for one another. I mean, that's a great part of the book of Ephesians. We're the church. We're a body. And so Paul, in a very practical way, is saying, this is important. And so we need to stay in touch. We're partners in ministry. Listen, our ministry, your ministry, my ministry may not be as a missionary to some far off place where we're separated from one another. We may be pastor and teacher, or we may be employer or employee, or our, the bulk of our ministry may be at home in family relationships as a husband or wife or parent to children and children with siblings or whatever the place of our ministry, and, and we all have a place of ministry in the body of Christ itself, in the church. We need one another. We need to build one another for love. By sending them a word of how he is doing, Paul is loving them and modeling for us how we need to love one another. We need to know one another and be known by one another. We need to carry one another in our hearts, and that's that's what's going on here. So at Redeemer, we don't want to be just a church where we show up on Sunday for a couple of hours a week. And, you know, we don't really engage in one another's lives. We don't really know what's going on with families and children and all that. But we just, we just worship and we maybe get fed, hopefully. And we satisfy our craving to be in the presence of God. And then we go our separate ways, never to be involved. We don't want to be that kind of church because the body of Christ is, is family. It's community. So whatever that looks like, we want to be involved with one another. And I should say this as well. We want to be an equipping church. As a young church plant, um, we aim and aspire for the Lord to raise up among us people we can send out to far places. That may be JBU students who will only be with us for a few years at a time. It may be some of us. But, but we want to, as we send people, we want to know them pray for them, give to them, and maintain relationship with them, right? We don't want to just send people away and through neglect turn our backs on them. And so when given the choice, uh, we need to, we want to support a lot of missions. Now, pray the Lord will raise up this church to be a tremendous sending agency, as it were, for world missions. But but however much or however little we can do, we want to choose quality over quantity. Meaning we want to send people we, we know and get to know and aim to continue to be involved with. And not just give people money and send them off. Uh, because Paul didn't do that. And that's not the way for the body of Christ. Paul knows that they love him and he loves them. And so Paul, what does he do? He sends... Tychicus. Paul can't go, but this other guy's going to give a report and encourage their hearts. So this is a little information here about Tychicus. We ought to ponder for a moment. Who is this guy? He describes as a beloved brother in the Lord. I was uh, reading uh, my old pastor on this passage, and he uh, opened my eyes to something I hadn't seen. And that is this strange man with this odd name, uh, is a guy whose name actually comes from a, a Greek word for fortune or fortunate, which is to say in a sense that his parents had named him something like lucky, right? And Paul's, Paul's 
man that he sends to the Ephesians with the Ephesians letter, which is about what, if anything? It's about God's sovereign grace. Jesus raised from the dead on the throne, ruling over all things for the good of his church, right? God sovereignly predestinating all things under his sovereign will. And the man he sends to deliver that letter and message is a man whose parents named him Lucky, right? It's just, a, it's kind of a hilarious irony here. That, but God had, at some point, plucked this man, perhaps out of a pagan background, whose parents would think Lucky's a good name. Because we believe in fortune we don't, and, or fate, but we don't believe in the God of the Bible. And yet God had rescued him and, and made him a beloved brother in the Lord. It's kind of an interesting thing. And not only that, he's a faithful servant. We know from Acts 20 verse 4 that he's from Asia. He may very well have been from Ephesus or nearby. He's a trusted colleague of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's, he's given this letter to carry. We know that he's actually given the Colossian letter also to carry. We know that he was involved in bringing uh, Onesimus, the runaway slave, who had been converted and then was being brought back to his Christian master in the book of Philemon. We know that Tychicus was to accompany him in that work and that his job here to the Ephesians was to encourage their hearts. Uh, by faithful minister in the Lord here, there's, there's some disagreement because the word Paul uses is the word for, uh, for deacon or servant, I should say, and then it, sometimes it means deacon. And it can be used in the context as well as a minister of the Lord. But we don't know, was he, was he an elder? Was he a preacher? Was he a, was he a deacon? He was some kind of servant in the Lord. Paul just knows this. I can trust this man. I can trust this man to take these books and give them to the people of God. And in whatever way, beyond the book itself, explain it and encourage the hearts of God's people. Listen, that's important. We need people who can encourage others because we all need encouragement there's a tremendous amount to be discouraged about not that we should be discouraged but it's easy to fall into discouragement you know whether it's your own personal sin and you're just tired of being you or or through weakness and and failure you have fallen into sin and you wonder can i ever be forgiven or maybe it's physical illness and it has worn your body out and your heart is sinking Or maybe it's that you have wayward family members or parents who don't know the Lord or prodigal children who are far from the Lord and you're you're growing discouraged. Or maybe you just care so much about the church and its progress and it's not made the progress you want it to make. Or you know of its persecution. Whatever it is, there's a lot we could be discouraged about and we need encouragement. And Tychicus, Paul says, he's he's your man. He's going to help you. He's going to lift your spirits. He's going to, he's going to do that. So it's a, it's a sweet picture at the end of this book. Here Paul is serving Jesus and writing this book and pastoring the church. And here's Tychicus serving Jesus by serving Paul on behalf of the church. Very different roles, friends. It helps to find out who you are and who you are not. It helps to know what gifts you have and what gifts you don't have. 
It's really for your happiness to not try to be somebody you're not, but to be content with whom God has made you to be and the gifts he's given you for your place in the kingdom. And what's Tychicus? He's a messenger boy in some ways, right? He's, He's sent to deliver communications and make sure there's no misunderstandings. He's not an apostle Paul. And that's okay. He's a beloved brother. He's faithful with the task God has called him to do. And though his name appears actually five times in the New Testament in five different books of the Bible, you may only have really heard of him tonight or been ever reminded of him tonight. Whereas the Apostle Paul is one of the first guys you think of when you think of the New Testament. But that's okay. And I don't think Tychicus would care. He would be more interested in you hearing about Jesus than he would be in you remembering his name. And that's an important principle in the Christian life. And I I couldn't help think, but think of my friend Ben Barr, who's uh, in Hot Springs at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Hot Springs. Ben was one of the founding couples. He He was a one of the founding men in that church, he and his wife and their family. And over time, uh, he got called and the congregation approved him and he accepted the position of elder and he served as an elder in that church when they had just a few elders and no deacons. And over time, some even of the deacons and elders had died off. It began as an older congregation. And over time, Ben began to realize I'm not an elder. I mean, it's not my gifting to to teach or pastor or shepherd the souls of people. But my gifting and my concern is to care for the physical needs and the financial needs and the the friendship needs and the, the bodily needs of the people of God in this world. I'm a deacon. I'm not an elder. And so he actually stepped down from being an elder to being a deacon, which is not a step down in the kingdom of God, you understand it. Do not misunderstand me on that. But to some, and by some appearances, it might be considered that. Wrongly. It's no higher calling to be a minister or an elder than it is to be a deacon or to be a non-officer, but a faithful, believing brother or sister in Christ who does what God calls you to do right where he calls you to do it. It's not a step up or a step down. But by appearances, by the impression of others, it would be. And here's Ben saying, this is just not my call and I shouldn't do this job. I should do this other thing. And that's just a beautiful, sweet picture. And that's where we all need to be is my point. We need to be comfortable with the gifts God has given to us and not try to be who we aren't. The church needs you to be who you are with the gifts that God has given you. Uh, in the Fellowship of the Rings, uh, a, the Hobbit has come back to life so we can bring back the Fellowship of the Rings right to your memory. In the Fellowship of the Rings, that great trilogy where the Hobbits have to save Middle-earth, By bearing the one ring that rules all the rings that's actually used for evil. They have to bear that off to the place where it came from and cause it to be burned up in the fires of Mount Doom and then disappear and so all can be well in Middle Earth. 
And in order to do that, Frodo bears this ring, and along with him comes Sam. Samwise Gamgee is his beloved and faithful friend. And, and through a long, exhausting journey, in which by the end they are just whipped, and Frodo can't make it up the mountain all the way that he needs to go, because he just collapses uh, with weakness. His friend Sam says to him, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And that's exactly what he does. He carries him up where he needs to be. And, well, there's more to the story, but the point is they working together and some other things that happen save Middle Earth from evil. They did it together. And that's the way we are in the body of Christ. God and God, friends, can raise up for his church all the people we need with the gifts we don't have for the sake of the progress of his kingdom, even right here in Psalm Springs. And under God's providence, you can be sure of this, that at this very moment, for right now, for this time, we have all the people we need with all the gifts God intends us to have for the work that he has called us to do right now for his kingdom for this moment of time. Who knows what he'll do in the future because he's in charge of all these things. So we want to pray, of course, for God to raise up men like Tychicus as well as men like the Apostle Paul. A whole variety of gifts and we need to encourage one another along the way. We need to be in one another's hearts and love and encourage one another. We need to do all those things. And Paul does that here. That's the first thing I want you to see. But the second thing that I want you to see is this. Paul concludes with, in verses 23 and 24, this sort of double benediction in which he blesses them and, and prays for them God's good gifts. This is what he wants most for them. What is it? What does he want? Two things. In verse 23 and then in verse 24. In the first place, what does Paul want for them? Because he loves them. Well, he wants them to enjoy and to experience the peace and love and faith that only comes from God. Notice the language of verse 23. Peace, he says, be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins with peace, which is, which is shalom, which is, which is wholeness, um, wellness in relationship with God and others. Peace between us and God, peace among us as the body of Christ, even peace in our world. He wants all of that for the people of God here. And then he wants them to know God's love more and more in the depths of their hearts. And then he also wants them to, to, for God to grow them in faith, right? Why does he want all these things? He wants all these things, friends, because these are God's good gifts and they only come from God. And we need them. All other religions teach either that there is, you know, there's really nothing wrong with you. And... Uh, if you could just sort of get uh, maybe more information, more enlightenment, a good education, then you could really solve all your problems, whether it's poverty or, or 
evil or other things. I mean, we just need to know more. That's one answer the world gives. Or the world says, well, you know, there is something wrong with you. There is something wrong with you. And now here is what you need to do to fix it. And instead of that, the gospel comes to us and Christianity teaches us that there is in fact something wrong with us and there's something wrong with this world. And there is nothing that you and I can do to fix it on our own. But that God, God can heal our hurts and God can restore us to health and wholeness. In other words, we need a savior. And we, we go on and keep needing a savior and God has given us a savior. And so as Christians, friends, Paul is reminding you here in the very last phrases, you never go beyond your need for Jesus and what Jesus alone can give you. You need, I need, we need to wade more deeply in the water of life. We need to drink more deeply of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we need to experience more deeply what it means to be made in the image of God and renewed in the image of God as God's workmanship. God has never done it with us if we are believers. And so Paul prays for them and he blesses them with, and he wants these things for the people of God. And we should pause and ask ourselves this question. Are these the things that we long for one another? I mean, do we have the same heart that Paul has? Uh, Alexander McLaren says, There is no better test of a man than the things that he wishes for the people he loves most. What do you desire most for those that are dearest to you? I would ask Christian parents, asking myself this question, what do we want most for our kids? I mean, do, do we want them to be smart and well-educated and have every opportunity in this world open to them so that they can be successful and have status and wealth? Or do we long to, for them to know the, the wholeness and well-being of being in a right relationship with God and be assured in the depths of their heart more and more of the love of God to them in Christ and for them to grow in faith and trust in God, even in the midst of hard things. Are these the things we long for most? This is what Paul wants for these people. And where do any of these things come from? Notice his language here. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith. From whom? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are his good gifts, friends. None of these come from ourselves. They come from God. And that, that, is, that is a sweet reminder to you when we don't see these in one another's lives. When you, when you look at family members you love and friends and neighbors and, and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you think maybe they've just tasted just, just the appetizer of the grace of the gospel. But I want them to have so much more. This is good news to you that these come from God and not from anybody else. Because they can't generate them and you can't make it happen. No parent has ever given these gifts to their children. 
You're incapable of giving them these things. But God isn't incapable, is the point. They come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, by the way, is more evidence that the Father and the Son are equally divine and that the good gifts of salvation come from both the Father and the Son, as Paul puts it. It's very clear. They come from both Father and Son because they are equally theirs to give. But his point is this, friends. If, if, you, have a, if you have prodigal children, if they are ever going to get it, they've got to get it from the one, the only one who can give it to them. You are never going to give it to them. Stop thinking you can and ask the Lord to give these things to them. And that's what Paul does. And then, and then his second benediction at verse 24, not only verse 23 does he want them to know God's peace and God's love and have faith that comes from God, trusting in God. But he wants them, verse 24, also to know God's grace and to go in God's grace. That's his language. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And when Paul here says grace be to you, he's saying basically this, may God continue to you the grace he has already begun. He's talking to the believers, to the church that has tasted grace. And he's saying may God continue this free And this undeserved and this unmerited favor of his to you in the face of all your demerits, in the face of every reason why he should do it. But may he continue that grace to you because that's the kind of God God is. He's gracious. And what did God do for you, friends? Do you remember in this book, if it's about anything, it's about the sovereign grace of God. When you were dead in your sin, God made you alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. You and I, as we said when we studied that passage, you and I weren't swimming around in an ocean of sin and filth and, and, you know, sort of getting by on our own, you know, maybe tainted by it, swallowed a little bit, maybe choking on it, but basically we're doing okay. And Jesus came out in a speedboat and said, hey, you want to lift back to shore? I, I, can, I can get you there. Jesus didn't do that for you. He also didn't find you drowning, having, having swallowed that water and barely alive and dying and going under. And he didn't come out and throw you a life preserver and say, grab hold and I will bring you into the boat. He didn't do any of that. Where did Jesus find you when he found you? He found you dead at the bottom of the ocean in the ocean of sin dead in your trespasses and he found you with no life in you and what did Jesus do as it were he came out in that boat and he dove off the side and he entered into your experience without sin on his own part and he went down to the bottom of the ocean and he pumped out of your lungs the filth of that water and he breathed into you the breath of life and he made you alive And you looked at him at the bottom of that ocean and you said, save me, rescue me. You realized you were in this terrible predicament. And you did that because he gave you eyes to see and he gave you life and he raised you then with him and he he seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what he did. And why did he do it? Because of his mercy and love and kindness 
and grace. Again, that's Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. He did this, friends, because he loved you. And so when you get to heaven, and should anybody ask you, what are you doing here? Though I don't think there'll be that kind of an attitude in heaven. But should somebody look at you and say, I think I knew you back down in the other world. How did you get here? You will never say to them, well, I was smarter. Maybe at the end of my life, but at some point I got smarter. I made, I made a good decision. I made the right decision. I got spiritual. I believed the right thing. I did the right thing. And it's on me. That's why I'm here. You will never say that. You will never say, I prayed a really good prayer. Or I, med, I read my Bible enough. Or I went to a wor- worship services enough. Or I did faithfully whatever it was that God told me to do. You will never say that. If somebody should ask you in heaven, why are you here? You will say, by the rich mercy of God who loved me with a great love and gave his son for me in my place upon the cross and on my behalf. And he bore my sin and he gave me his righteousness and he made me alive. And Jesus brought me here. And I owe it all to him. That's what you will say, friends. That's grace. He rescued you. Now, why then this language? At the end of verse 24, please don't let this trouble you. Why the language of verse 24? If you are a believer, don't let this trouble you, I should say. But the end of verse 24 is grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible and if you are like me you are a saint here today thinking have I got that kind of love for Jesus love incorruptible I mean the love I have for Jesus is so weak and at times it's been far weaker and I know how frail it is and how fickle it is is Paul saying grace only to you Christians who are unstoppable and unbeatable and, and your love for Jesus can't decay. No, that is not what he is saying in the least. In the first place, why do you love Jesus? This is what we've been saying. You love Jesus because he first loved you. And he gave you love in your heart for him. And in every believer, there is a seed of love and it like a plant as it is watered and nourished in the grace of God and over time it grows and it bears much fruit but sometimes when we've just begun or sometimes when we sat under the shade of something that's hindered the sunlight of God's grace It seems so weak. Paul is not saying this grace is only for those who have it all together with love. Paul is reminding you, however, that God's grace, God's peace, God's love, God's gift of faith is truly only for those who do love Jesus. And it's not that you first love him and he gives you all these things. 
but that God first loved you, made you alive, gave you the seed of them all, and because they're in you, Paul is saying, I want more in you. I want them to their fullest expression. But we don't credit ourselves. You didn't first love him, as the hymn writer said, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him. Seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. I I find, I walk, I love. But oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. This is what Paul is reminding you of. Those who love Jesus do so because they have been graced. And so that grace is for them in abundance. And it is with them. And it can grow in them. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind. But now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Let's pray together and thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for uh, being abundant, generous, lavish with your love and forgiveness, pardon peace. We pray that you would deepen our experience of it and you would begin that experience for those who've never yet tasted it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together then and sing Amazing Grace.